because you're jumping back into the gap. All right, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Coach's real treat today, we have Simon Gersberg with us. Simon is the founder of ShotQuality.com. Shot Quality's goal is to calculate the quality of shots for coaches to optimize shot selection. Uh, ShotQuality.com is now used by over 40 NCAA teams and over five NBA teams. And uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Welcome to the podcast, Simon. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Um, Just for you to give me this platform, it's just it's a microcosm of how I felt the last six months since I started shot quality. Just amazed how open college coaches have been to new information that'll help them win games. I mean, most people in under industries and those of authority, I feel wouldn't be able to overlook my age and would take the stats and information I provide with a grain of salt. But every coach, no matter their authority and their accolades has truly dove into these stats and therefore understood the value it could bring to their team. So I just like to give a shout out to all those coaches. And of course you well, it's great to hear. We're going to dive into so much with this uh, shockquality.com and uh, what, you, what you founded and created. Maybe let's just start from the, the beginning a little bit, and that is why shockquality.com. So um, the beginning, I'd say it started. So I'm the data analyst for the Colgate basketball team. I work mainly with one of the assistants, Coach Klatsky. So Dave Klatsky. Um, he originally was calculating shot quality by hand. So he was watching film. He understood all the players in the Patriot League, obviously, very well. And he would calculate the percent chance each shot have had it going in. So then starting this past season, I started doing it by hand. And what I found was that although the numbers are great and it took a long time, when I was able to automate the process and therefore get objective numbers, it seemed to just be the the uh, more accurate and precise way to find these shot quality and shot selection numbers. So when the numbers started matching up with coach Klatsky's, then we started moving on to that. Then when uh, during quarantine, I had a lot of free time. So I was able to automate it for all of college basketball. So now I'm just trying to spread the word as much as I possibly can. So that's a little bit of the why, but let's first go back. Cause a lot of us, I mean, certainly as coaches, We've talked about shot quality. We talk about it in relatively abstract terms, although we try and make it uh, as understandable as possible for our players. But one of the common ways to have done that in the past was to use some type of shot rating, uh, which I got from Don Meyer a long time ago, and that's the one, two, three, four system. Can you talk about what the limitations of that type of system are? For sure. Yeah. I mean, despite it being pretty rudimentary, it's just too subjective because so many coaches are so inherently biased by so many different factors to have an objective uh, zero to three scale. Um, so like 1.2, uh, 1.3, it's just more accurate and precise. So every single coach I've talked to that's used this rudimentary one to four scale has moved on to shot quality because they understand the value of shot selection. And this is the next evolution of that. As simple as possible then to start, how do we calculate shot quality? Yes. Okay. So in total, there are over 90 different variables that go into the calculation. 
And so it's the type of shot multiplied by the percent chance that shot has it going in. So let's say I take a 30% three-point shot. The shot quality value would then be 0.9 because it's 0.3 times three. So this 30% number that I'm making up right now, that is where all the variables come in to calculate that number. So these 90 variables for every single individualized player in college basketball has uh, a certain number in each area that they take on the floor. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And obviously there's more to it, but uh, of course, in, of course. In real, yeah, of course, especially when you mention 90 variables. Now, my immediate thought when you said that is, are there variables that are more important than others when it comes to my ultimate goal, which is taking your data and making it actionable for my team and for my players? Of course, that's the only thing that matters if you can create change. So um, in terms of like the statistics, I'd say the most important would be the common, uh, okay, what's this player's three-point percentage on his 55 attempts he's had the last two seasons? But there's obviously factors that go on in the game. So how contested that shot was? Uh, how um, was it assisted? Was it off the dribble? So all these factors obviously have a great impact. But the most important factor is obviously the individual player's ability on that shot attempt. And then the other factors obviously have an impact, but it's always the individual player that has the greatest impact. So I've said this before on podcasts, and that is the the challenge for us is to be able to evaluate decisions independent of outcome. So what you've created is something for us to be able to evaluate shot quality somewhat independent of the outcome, right? That's the entire goal of shot quality. So it's based off the theory of outcome bias. So every coach, I'd say it's really hard for coaches to not overvalue the outcome, but outcome bias, the theory behind it is that people tend to overvalue the outcome over the quality of the decision itself. So let's just say an inefficient shooter takes a deep contested three and hits it. What percent of coaches are telling that player that it was a bad shot? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it obviously it depends. I mean, so much of this is, is dependent on the coach's philosophy and what they're comfortable with too. Right. So I'd say it's obviously a slim amount. Um, Yeah. And even those players, like even those coaches that tell the players that that's a bad shot, even though he hits it, um, I don't think the players would listen if they hit it because the crowd's going crazy. And now they're on Sports Center on the top 10 play because it was such a flashy shot. But if you have no numbers to show them that this shot had X percent chance of going in and this is an inefficient shot compared to our team in NCAA, they can't remonstrate with that because the data doesn't lie. It's just objective numbers. So teams that have, have used this, and I know you're in an early sample size of that, that's only going to grow, but uh, how have teams adjusted based on knowing these shot quality numbers? So I can give an example of one specific team. So um, Indiana, so they have a player named Trace Jackson Davis. He posts up a lot, uh, overall pretty efficient player, but when he posts up on the right block, it has half of the efficiency of him driving to the basket and put his, putting his head down. So I told one of the assistants on the staff um, or one of the person on the staff, they can't run this anymore with him. Like it's half the efficiency. If, if that's the whole season, you got, you might lose five points a game if he runs it 10 times. So it, it's clearly, and you could do this with any player on any team. So you can find each player's green, red, yellow zones with shot quality numbers. So, uh, and again, I know we're early in this, like how, and, and this applies to all data in general, like, like clearly as coaches, we've got to decide what's most important for our players to know. 
Because the problem is we can create paralysis by analysis for players, right? That suddenly they're questioning things that they're doing in the moment because of certain numbers or, as you said, green, red, and yellow areas. Can you address that a little bit? Of course. I think that's like one of the most significant things with shot quality. You don't want to just tell a player that's an awful shot. Like I I know I was giving that example earlier, but you don't want to do that. That would hurt his confidence. So a lot of times what I've suggested to all these coaches that I tell, I tell them these numbers is you tell them the good shots. You tell them this is better than this shot. You don't want to just tell them that's an awful shot, but you tell them when you drive to the basket, this is the efficiency. It's really good for our team. But when you post up, it's a little worse. So can you, Next time you're in an opportunity when you're in the post, can you face up and can you attack the hoop from there instead of just taking a hook shot or something uh, like a post up? Well, I like that because I'm a big believer in not in not giving players absolutes, but giving them possibilities and giving them possibilities within a range that's saying, hey, this is increasing your shot quality if you're doing this, this or this versus this, this or this. And that's really what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. And then. Over a course of a season, obviously there's there's tons of data and tons of things that happen. How do you account for luck in this equation? Because some t- sometimes there's factors like that that people assume are involved in basketball. So the kind of theory behind shot quality is that it dispels of the luck and just delivers the objective results of how the game should have played out in the long run. There are so many teams that, I can give an example team, Manhattan was supposed to win nine more games this season than they did or Virginia was supposed to lose 11 more games than they did just because they got just because they got lucky and unlucky so it's based off the shot selection that each team is getting and the individual players are getting and therefore um, teams teams get lucky and unlucky but the goal of shot quality is really to dispel the luck and give the numbers of how the game should have played out so talk to me about that example then with Manhattan so they should have won more games. So yes. why didn't they in what you're accounting for? So essentially the teams they played in the Mac, they got really good shots against them and they got bad shots against them. But for some reason in those particular games, those bad shots that their opponents are getting were falling and the good shots that they were getting weren't. So in each game, it could be like a two point difference, but that could be the difference in the game. So what shot selection and what shot quality was finding was that, um, they were just getting unlucky. And in the long run, that's where you want to be. It's hard for a coach, right? Because again, at the end of the day, yeah, like at the end of the day, you're going looking at the data going, wow, we actually did a really good job, which is important to know, right? Then you're not going to go change a bunch of things. And I know you have an example about that, which you'll share in a second. But the, the, the other part of that is, is like, for, for me, it's like, it's an assessment of not just of our offense, but of our defense as well, which is really the important part of this. If you know your opponent is getting great shots and you're still winning, you know what to work on, which is our defense isn't quite there yet. Cause at some point this is going to come back to us. Exactly. Because let's say you win a game by 20 points. Um, how can you discern between the fact that you got great shots or you took bad shots and they were just falling that game? Cause that happens all the time where teams win by crazy amounts, but it, it, it couldn't be the, – the, the result may not be indicative of what's going to happen down the road. So you need to know when to adjust your game strategy and when it was a lucky occurrence or was real if your team really is getting great shots. 
Well, we've talked about that a little bit, you and I separately, and I want you to share that because it's an example that goes, you play a, a, an opponent twice in your league schedule, for example. And yeah, based so- on that first game, you can evaluate whether you needed to make adjustments or not for that second game. Exactly. So we played Lafayette twice in the conference play, Colgate. Uh, we got great shots both games. We lost both. So Coach Klatsky, me and Coach Klatsky saw us. He told Coach Lango for the playoff game, we don't need to adjust anything because we got great shots. And in the long run, we will beat them. So when we played them in the playoffs, we destroyed them. So it really is predictive on a game-by-game basis like that. When you get great shots and you hold your opponents to worse shots, in the long run, you'll win. Now, the other part for me is, like, can we connect this great shot to something specific within the offense that we're doing? So get it beyond the individual player and then focus on what actually led to that great shot. So down the road, that would be something I would love to dive into because I think that is so vital. But right now we're looking at the things that are occurring on the court. So like, yes, what offense this team runs, what defense this team runs. What we're looking at is the result because these offenses and defenses lead to certain shot attempts. That's obviously super significant, but it's the result and the occurrence that really matters for shot quality when calculating it, if that makes sense. It it does. And and where I'm going with this is somewhat, I I did my master's on this 25 years ago, basically (laughs) on shot quality and connecting it to the sequence, not to the offense, but to the sequence. And what it found, what I found through the study was that essentially Everything either came down to one-on-one offensive rebounding, you know, getting fouled in terms of the highest percentage of shots. Now, what created the one-on-one is what's important, right? What created that advantage? And uh, that's what's fascinating for these type of things is that, you know, helping to quantify exactly what we should be doing more of within our offense and then which player should be doing more of certain things as well. Exactly, yeah. So, like, I I think that's probably the most valuable asset that shot quality has is adjusting the gameplay. So like there are so many examples for every team I run. I gave the example of Indiana with Trace Jackson Davis, where if you know your best plays and your worst plays, it's obviously intuitive to run more of your best plays and less of your worst plays. And that's what shot quality gives you. It just, it's actionable change because you know, okay, if I run more of these plays, we will be a higher efficient team. If we run more catch and shoot threes with X, Y, if we run more drives to the basket off pick and rolls to the left with player X, we will be a more efficient team. And knowing that for every single team, I think is going to be so vital for this next season and really maximizing their offensive efficiency. Your point about Virginia, that they should have lost more games based on shot quality. Does that, is that reflect back on their defense then that, that the defense is what's helped them and that their offense is not at the level it could be at. Yeah, so obviously defense is a significant part of shot quality, so I'm looking at the stat. Now, they were supposed to lose 10 more games than they did, and it's not like defense is undervalued with the stat because uh, there were plenty of teams with great defenses like Memphis who are supposed to win more games or a few other teams that have great defenses were supposed to win more games. So it's not defense being undervalued. It's more their offense not getting great shots uh, based off shot quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And I guess that's another question for all of this is based on Again, you haven't gone, say, let's focus on the NCAA rather than the NBA, but are, are there certain styles of offense that seem to produce better quality of shots? Is that something that you can make that type of verdict at this point? That would be so interesting. That is not that is something I've not looked into at this point, but that would be incredible. So I could tell you the five best offenses according to shot quality, and you could tell me. 
Gonzaga won by a significant amount. Then Dayton, Duke, Oregon, and Creighton are all two. Hey, Coach, a quick interruption from this episode for a mention from our supporters who, without them, this podcast would not be possible. By using the links I mentioned in these advertisements, it enables me to continue providing this podcast for free for you. The wait is finally over. Football is in full effect, with many teams strutting their stuff. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Bet BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on everything imaginable this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. Head to BetOnline today and use promo code ARMCHAIR, that's ARMCHAIR in all capitals, to take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, again, I don't I don't want to go deep dive on what each team runs or anything like that. But to me, obviously, all almost all of shot quality and this type of number to a certain extent comes back to the skill of the player, right? The skill of the player and then the skill of the coach to put players in situations where they are going to take higher, you know, higher quality shots. So that that list doesn't surprise me because it almost across the board starts with really good talent. Exactly. Exactly. So how much does the quality of an opponent affect the metrics? So the main area where it affects is the interior paint defense. So if a team is a really good paint defense, that has a very significant part of the uh, calculation because I've found that. So I've done the, I've run the numbers on this. So, uh, contesting threes isn't really predictive on like a uh, season game by game basis. Like I don't think if a team's really good at defending the three point line that it's as impactful, like this team will do it the next game because they're good at defending the three point line. But I have found interior paint defense to be much more predictive in that way. So let's say when you drive at a team like Memphis, who has precious and a few other incredible interior defenders, uh, obviously it's going to be a lower quality shot. So it'll regress based on the quality of that interior paint defense when they take a shot in the paint against a team like Memphis or any team in the NCAA, of course. So I love thinking about these scenarios that you're, you're, you're stimulating because again, like I think about that, okay, 40% three point shooter or 44%, let's say on paper, you know, so he's a really good shooter. But then if I look at his shot quality numbers, I go, he's not taking really good shots though. So it means he's making tough shots. So does that somehow impact my defensive game planning in saying, let's not overreact to this supposedly great shooter? Exactly. Yeah. So it, the, the real value shot quality has is because it works really well in small samples because um, the stats are regressed towards the mean. So, you know, let's say like, let's say uh, like Aaron Nesmith uh, starting for this season, let's say he didn't enter the NBA and he's playing this season. He shot like 55% from three. So, um, obviously he's a great shooter, but he's not a 55% three-point shooter. So knowing the real value of each player and not just looking at the points per possession, because that could overvalue or undervalue, uh, is going to be super valuable for creating scouts. So like, let's say a guy is a really inefficient short mid-range shooter. Maybe you go under on screens and force that shot. So do you, do you have like, would a coach or they may not yet, but this is what maybe what you're working towards. Does, does having the shot quality available during the game, say halftime, you know, or some situations like that, does that help a coach during a game or is this mainly in summary after? 
man, that would be, that would be incredible. So that's the, that's like the ultimate goal. That's where I want to move towards. Like that's, if I can do that, um, I think that'll be so huge for coaches. Cause, um, I, I, I just, it's, it's just not possible right now, but that is exactly where I want to move towards. Well, and again, I think coaches, uh, listening are just going, okay, this is so cool. And that's all we're doing. Someone is talking about even future possibilities with this, which I know you're going to continue to work on and develop, but, uh, you know, just seeing this basic idea of being able to define this for uh, a player for a team is just uh, so potentially impactful. For sure. For sure. So talk about some of the best practices you would suggest for uh, utilizing shot quality data. For scouting. Um, let's say you're playing a team in conference play and we have a lot of data on that team. You look, okay, how can we force more of their worst shots and less of their best shots? How can we take away their top tier shots? What what defense can we run to take away these shots for this team? I think that's going to be huge for scouting, uh, for conference and non-conference play. For individual players and player development, finding the areas that uh, will maximize this player's shot quality is taking more of the green zones and less of the red zones. So how, how can we get more of these shots with this guy? And how can this guy take less of these shots? Yeah, I mean, that that one in particular for player development is, is again, you're putting and, – and I find, which which you must see even more than me, that players are more aware of analytics now. The players coming into college, even players in high school I talk to, have an idea of what analytics are. So this adds credibility to the conversation about player development. Definitely, definitely. I think now more than ever, people are really seeing the value of data. And um, hopefully college basketball will move to the way uh, the NBA has moved with evolving, using data to create actionable change that will maximize your team's efficiencies. What are some specific I guess, well, let's start with this. What are the most important factors in increasing shot quality, in your opinion? So the, the most, I mean, I only have one year of data so far, so I'm just at the cusp of this, but that's exactly where I want to look at. By the end of this year, when I have two seasons and I can see the difference in shot attempts for each player, I'll be able to figure this out. But I think it's just increasing the frequency of high quality shots and decreasing the frequency of low quality shots. So like if a guy is an incredible catch and shoot and drive to the basket player, which most people are because too much efficient shots um, compared to short mid range and long mid range players, just take more of the shots that you're better at and are high efficient shots. So I think that's going to be obviously the simple answer, but I really want to find out. I really want to dive into it when I have that second year of data uh, for each player. Good stuff. And then uh, maybe what, is the most important factor or most important factors for a defense now in limiting shot quality? Uh, I, I feel like I went over that already too, but I feel like it's just uh, limiting the best shots and taking away the limiting the best shots and taking away and get, getting more, forcing more of the bad shots. I guess along those lines, how much of increasing an individual player, an individual player's shot quality is a fun- function of their individual work? Versus how much of it is a function of team strategy and tactics. So that's another one that I would love to dive into. Um, it's just not on hand with just one year of data set at this point in time. But that would be so cool to see because like I can give an example of a player in college basketball. So like for NBA draft scouting, um, someone like Cole Anthony, who was in a really bad system with poor spacing. 
it, it wasn't he wasn't in the best opportune system to maximize his personal efficiency. So he was a very inefficient player this year because of poor spacing, um, because of his supporting cast. So um, understanding the impact spacing and other factors that are on the court can have, I'm going to track this year. So that's going to be a stat I'm going to be looking at is spacing and gravity. Um, and hopefully that will lend itself to get a clearer look of the system negatively impacting or positively impacting the player. Yeah, that'd be cool to see. And, and, and in fairness to, uh, you know, that, that situation, I mean, it may not have been the system. It may be more the players within the system. For sure. It's, for sure. Since for clearly sure. Carolina's system has been successful, of course, but, of course, yeah. but it's obvious that there wasn't the talent around Cole Anthony to make the spacing work. Yes. hundred percent. So uh, to me, how have you found uh, through your work with Colgate the best way to be able to communicate to a player that they need to improve their shot quality? What are the best ways to be able to communicate that? Yeah, I think that's the most important thing with this is how can we create this actionable change? And it's going to be through telling them telling them the areas to do more of and the areas to do less of. You can't just focus on the bad things for each player. If, if you do that, it's going to destroy their confidence. Like there are, there are some guys that every single area of their game is inefficient, but you could still find the most efficient of those inefficient areas. So it, they, there, there always is ways to become a more efficient and gain a higher shot quality value. And you just need to, you need to go to their individual player page and really see these zones and the numbers behind each zone and see what we can do to get more and less of to maximize this player in our scheme. The quality of a shot is determined by the quality of the pass. Is that something that we can confirm through this? Totally, totally. So there are so many times where people make great passes to players for layups and they miss those layups. On the stat sheet, all those times, it it doesn't count as assists. Players can leave games thinking, oh, I made great passes. But I, I only got one assist. How is that possible? I'm sure you've experienced that as a coach, right? Totally. Yeah, so with the shot quality stats, we have this stat called shot quality assist, which calculates the probability that shot had of going in and therefore counts it as an SQ assist or not. So let's say I make a pass to a guy for a deep mid-range two who's a really bad shooter. Obviously, that's a low-quality shot. And let's say he let's say he hits it. So it'll count as an assist. Most likely because it's such a low probability shot, it won't count as an SQ assist. So the the passing stats are more indicative than traditional assist stats is what you're saying. Definitely. So there's three, there's three qualities of the assist that, that makes it a bad represent representation of passing. It puts too much value on the shooter making the shot rather than the pass itself. Um, a pass to a three point shot is more valuable than a pass to a two pointer, but an assist counts them equally. And finally, the assist ignores passes that lead to fouls drawn. So the SQ passing points created stat, which is the second passing stat, um, it dispels of all of these and basically counts the accumulation of the passing points created uh, in a game. So let's say I make a pass to a guy for a wide open layup and a wide open three. And those are the only two passes I make. And he misses both of them. So there's a good chance in that game, well, he will have zero assists, but he will have an SQ passing points created of around three. And that's all that matters with passing. How many points do we create from our passes 
is what should be drawn and what should be taken away uh, when leaving a game. Yeah, that seems like a tremendous thing to be able to share with your team and to be able to, again, guide your decisions as a coach going into your next practice, into your next games about the different things you work on, but also the different things that you run potentially on offense. Definitely, definitely. There have been so many guys that I've seen uh, where their stats have been like they created X. They only so a good example, Jordan Radabell from Northern Colorado. He averaged like he was like the 10th best assist guy in the league. But he created more passing points than like almost every other player, but Josh Sharkey on Radford. So he he on uh, Stanford. Uh, so he created more passing points than like almost every other player, but he didn't have the highest assist total. So it's it, you know it's interesting, and we know that uh, traditional box scores haven't caught up with you know the way that a player would evaluate themselves publicly, right, or a fan would or potentially even an athletic director would. So like having this advanced data is great, but it would almost be better to be able to share it somewhat publicly so that people know, first of all, hey, listen, yeah, like we we played a really good game. We just didn't make shots is an old coach kind of cliche, right? But yeah. sometimes it's true. It is. It is. It really is. Yep. So I would want to share this data almost with my fans and say, listen, here's the data that proves it. <laughs> hey, I'll, I'll post a bunch of games on Twitter. If the coaches don't, uh, they don't, coaches don't subscribe, I'll, I'll still post a few on Twitter just so they can see it. Yeah. Uh, it's such a cool thing to be able to say. So co coaches have often evaluated shot selection with their intuition. And to a certain extent, I think coaches get pretty good at understanding good shot or bad shot relative to their philosophy but we're still inherently biased. Can you talk about some of these reasons? So uh, I've been through outcome bias already, but I think one of the most significant reasons that are bias in coaches is the crowd and the personality of the player. People are too close. The coaches are too close to the players to zoom out and really understand the quality of their shots they're getting. So I can give an example on the Colgate team. We have a player, one of the best players in the conference, Jordan Burns. He takes... Lots of high-quality shots, but he does resort to a lot of deep off-the-dribble threes. And because when he hits it, the crowd goes crazy. It's like one of the most exciting shots, big momentum changer. But the issue is it is not a high-quality shot for the Colgate team last season. So when I told uh, one of the assistants on staff that this was a, a low-quality shot for us, he was surprised because of the fact that um, – because of the fact that the crowd goes crazy and, and it just seemed like a good shot for our team when in reality it was not. So it wasn't a good shot for your team. Was it a good shot for Jordan then? No, it was a below average shot for Jordan. Okay. All right. So that's an example then of the crowd or the moment, or as you said, the personality in giving us a bias in terms of determining whether it's a good shot or not. For sure. So like when he takes a catch and shoot three or a drive to the basket, it's like 0 0.2, 0 0.3 higher than that off the dribble three. And especially when it's deeper, it's going to be less efficient. Having been in that situation where I had an exceptional shooter, I, I know there's there's this part of me that always said that their shot off the dribble is better than someone else's catch and shoot three. So because they're our best player and they're our best scorer. But this stat would support that if it was true and obviously yes. debunk it if it wasn't. Yes. So I, I, it's so rare you find a catch and shoot player that's more efficient than off the dribble, but it does happen. I, I've seen 
there's, I think there was one player on the Creighton team that actually was higher on off the dribble threes than catch and shoot. It is very rare, but it happens. So like, obviously it's based off how they, the production on that off the dribble three. And are you, are most of these off the dribble threes, are they coming off of ball screen situations or are these just one-on-one uh, -on -one off the dribble threes? So it could be, uh, it's, it counts off screen also if he puts yeah. the ball down. So it's, it's the threes that are, uh, the threes that are non-assisted or non-potential assisted. No, interesting. That's going to be great data going forward too, in terms of that, because I know the off the dribble three has become such a part of the game and you see trainers and players and coaches, you know, developing this skill within their players and curious if it's going to increase over time in terms of its value. Definitely. Definitely. And hopefully uh, the coaches will understand the value of each player and really see which shots should we get more of for this guy and less of. Well, and the other part is obviously when does it come in the shot clock? And does that factor into this as well? Certain segments of the shot clock produce better quality shots for certain players? So if it's a if it's like if it's like a last second shot, then yes. But uh otherwise I've not seen like anything indicative of shot clock uh impacting the the shots, the shot quality yet. Yeah, that's interesting. So teams that play faster, teams that play slower, this this removes any type of bias in that sense. Yeah, so that's my next step. So I actually just created like the pacing stat and I wanted to see how the correlation between that and some of the shot quality stats. That was like that was a stat I created, like not created, but I I, I just uh put into the code last night and hopefully uh for this new season I'll be able to display some of that and maybe write some articles about how how that uh impacts the shot quality. Cause I know a team like Alabama who got high quality shots uh play, play at a really quick pace. So that'll be interesting to see uh how it differentiates for each team. Yeah, it'd be very interesting. Cause I mean, again, just purely subjective. You think about Virginia and you think about they play at a slower pace. So they're getting tougher shots in shot clocks because it's more five on five than more advantage disadvantage. Yep. And that, that's a really good example. Yeah. So yeah, that's going to be great for uh, when, when I look at that down the road. That's great. I'm excited that there's so many things that we can still look at. <laughs> I know there's so much like it's obviously the beauty, but also like the curse with this is that there I'm only at the cusp of what I can find and look at. So like if any coaches have any ideas that they want me to look at, just like you've done, Chris, like anything, like I, I just want to build it out and really see um, what the data shows and, and what's what's the best and worst um, uh, schemes and everything for all teams and all players. Hey, coach, a quick interruption from this episode for a mention from our supporters who, without them, this podcast would not be possible. By using the links I mentioned in these advertisements, it enables me to continue providing this podcast for free for you. The wait is finally over. Football is in full effect, with many teams strutting their stuff. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on everything imaginable this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. Head to Bet Online today and use promo code ARMCHAIR, that's ARMCHAIR in all capitals, to take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Listen up, fellows, because today we have a new Manscaped product alert. Manscaped just released the Weed Whacker Nose and Ear Hair Trimmer. Take a look in the mirror and I guarantee you'll see hair sticking out of those holes. It's time to keep your ear and nose hair looking as nice as your clean-shaven pubes. Manscaped is forever changing the grooming game with their Weed Whacker. 
The nose and ear hair trimmer provides proprietary skin-safe technology, which helps prevent nicks, snags, and tugs in those delicate holes. The premium Manscaped Weed Whacker uses a 9,000 RPM motor-powered, 360-degree rotary dual-blade system. Its intelligently contoured design enhances the trimming experience, and it is waterproof, which makes for easy operation and cleaning. Look, fellas, 79% of partners polled admitted that long nose hair is a major turnoff. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code armchair at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code armchair. What are you waiting for? Go whack your weed. Thank you, Manscaped, for keeping our pubes trimmed and hairs in our holes looking nice. Now back to the podcast. So primarily this is college and NBA right now, but do you, do you have any advice to high school coaches that would want to look at shot quality and be able to examine some of this information a little bit? Obviously they can't have the full data set, but what are the things that they can do in your opinion right now? So coach Mantegna, the Blair Academy, he was on uh, me and uh, my uh, college roommate uh, did a podcast and he was on it. And he was telling me he just this past season started doing the zero to five scale. And he was, he was asking me when, when am I going to move to high school to, to, to get him the shot quality system for his team. And hopefully I will down the road. But um, I thought that was so funny that he moved to that zero to five scale. So it's almost like they're going through the same progression that hopefully colleges will now. Uh, they start the zero to five and then hopefully uh, something will come around with shot quality. Now, it, it, and saying that is the zero to five scale, is that the best thing available in your opinion for high school coaches now or coaches that don't have the resources? If they don't have the resources, then yes, you need to be tracking shot quality and shot selection. So the way uh, I believe Blair did it was zero was, uh, so a zero would be a live ball turnover, a one would be a dead ball turnover, a two would be a mid range, a three would be a off the dribble three, a four would be catch and shoot and a drive and a foul drawn would be five or so something like that. Um, yeah, just anything to really to get a better look of the shots you're getting for your team and who's getting these best shots. Yeah, do it for sure. For sure. That's good. And, and again, I'm just thinking out loud as, as you're saying some of these things and thinking about uh, practice a little bit, too, and thinking probably the way to develop shot quality the best using your system would to be able to have practice stats. Right. Okay. Because ultimately we practice more than we play. So if I can help a player, if I want to change their shot selection or I want to impact it in some way, I want to be able to chart it within practice as well to be able to get this data set for them. Totally, totally. Like I've talked to so many coaches where uh, they think uh, because this guy hit so many threes in practice, but he missed so many in game. I, I wish I had the practice data to back that up. I obviously don't, but that would take it to the next level. And getting all that practice data. Yeah, that, that would be like, imagine if there was a way to like input the practice data into the shot quality data frame. So then the numbers would be even updated for practice. data. That could be something down the road, possibly even. Well, yeah, no, it should it, it, definitely that would be the next level in terms of really impacting change. And then obviously you think about, too, the other part that I would always come back to is, well, they're making a lot of shots in practice. They potentially aren't game shots, right? They're not. And then by game like shots, I don't mean speed coming off a screen or anything like that, you know, on air. I mean, you're making a decision before you shoot, right? And that's the difference between often how we practice and how we play is we remove decisions before we shoot. 
And then we try and assess a player. Well, they're shooting it really well, but you know, they didn't have to make a decision. So it's really, they've removed this whole perception action coupling. So doing this authentically within offense versus defense in practice would give people a better barometer of shot selection. Definitely. No doubt. Absolutely. No doubt. Excited for the next level of this for sure. Uh, how big a factor should shot quality play in the hiring and firing of coaches? So I, I love this. So <laughs> I think the biggest issue with college basketball right now is that we overvalue outcomes. Obviously it's the outcome that matters. Whoever gets that NCAA tournament, it's the outcome that matters. But in terms of hiring and firing coaches, imagine a team got so unlucky that they were supposed to lose 10 more games than they did. Or to 10 less, they were supposed to win 10 less games than they did. How is that fair to put it on the coach that, um, that, that their team did worse than they were supposed to do just based off luck? There are things that we can control of as a, like, as a coach. You have things that you can control of. And luck is not one of those. So how could an AD or someone penalize a coach for something that is out of their control? That I find uh, puzzling. And hopefully this, these stats will help with that to really get a better look of what's luck and what's actually coaching ability. Well, and to be honest, I'm cheering for that to happen, right? Like that ultimately is the problem with coaching is so much of what we do is just based on outcome. And I get that. The outcome is important. It matters. But if we could somehow assess the level of someone's job, like it's easy to say Mike Krzyzewski had a great year at Duke, right? And this isn't to discount him, but his talent is better than most, right? Which is also a testament to his success. But the question is, how would we evaluate coaches truly? The only way to do it is with these type of stats, right? So I have another one that I think besides like record luck and expected record, uh, shot quality points per possession after timeout. Because every stat that represents a player and a team and just a record and everything, a lot of it is the player individual factor. So like you said with Mike Krzyzewski on Duke and all his players, but shot quality points possession after timeout. That's strictly the coach's ability to drop efficient plays. So in the country this past season, the five leaders, it wouldn't be who you'd expect. It wouldn't be those guys at the high major schools that are well-renowned as the best coaches. The five best were Todd Lee from South Dakota, James Jones from Yale, Craig Smith from Utah State, uh, Bob Ritchie from Furman, and Joe Pasternak from UC Santa Barbara. And then six was Anthony Grant from Dayton. So like these are not the names that you would expect to be the top tier coaches and drawing up plays and the preeminent coaches, but based off the data, they were this past season. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because to a certain extent, like those names that you mentioned, those would be names that I would go, okay. Yeah. Those guys, I feel like they're really good coaches. Like I feel the way they do things, the way that their teams play, I feel that they have a great understanding of these things. So I guess I'm not surprised And I know there is obviously a bias in our assessment of coaches based on the level they coach at, right? So like Furman versus Gonzaga, we're going to evaluate that completely differently. Totally. And yeah, that's so true because we are so inherently biased when it comes to factors like this, thinking of the best coaches, uh, who gets the most airplay, um, who's on ESPN the most, 
And as a fan, obviously that that's what I thought my whole life, but getting a stat like this to really see who's doing the best coaching job with just in a vacuum, who's doing the best coaching job. I think these stats uh, do a good job of indicating that. Well, let's qualify that conversation too. When we talk about coaching, we're talking about technical tactile. We're not talking about building the program and recruiting and all the other things around it. That's the one thing I, I like, and I'm glad you brought that up. The shot quality after timeout essentially comes back to technical, tactical coaching. Yes, 100%. Yeah, no doubt. That's cool. Uh, be, I, I guess where I want to go, and uh, shout out to Mark Jablonski, who who planted this in my mind, but can you talk a little bit how models like this sometimes make teams that are really good look better? than they are and then teams that really suck to look worse than they are. So the entire theory behind shock quality is based off this regression to the mean that you're talking about with the Pythagorean expectation. Uh, but the reason it doesn't overvalue the good teams, undervalue the bad teams is because it's based off the players, individual abilities in each of these areas. So I'll give an example, a team like Gonzaga, they were 31 and two. They were expected to be also 31 and two. So there are teams that just, their record is exactly how it played out. Conversely, Kennesaw State, they only won one game and we're supposed to go winless. So it's not necessarily the the bad teams are are should have won more and the good teams should have won less, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I'm glad we got some uh some Pythagorean expectation in there. Uh <laughs> definitely the first time it's been mentioned uh on a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I'm happy I was able to bring that up. Totally yeah, so like the, the the luck percentage stat that I've seen with the Pythagorean theory expectation, I think it's a little flawed because let's say a game where a guy, uh, a 25% three-point shooter nails all eight of his three-point attempts and their team wins by 20 points. That's a lucky occurrence. And because the odds are that that player won't hit that many threes on a consistent basis, the luck percentage stat fails to value this and they'll overvalue that team because they scored more points, ignoring the fact that they weren't high quality shots that won't go in the long run. Yeah. It, it, again, some of that stuff uh, goes beyond the conversation we're going to have today, but uh, it's really interesting to think about some of these possibilities and some of these, this future thinking about how, where this can go and then how we can apply it. Cause ultimately it's the blend of the art and science of coaching that matters most for us is great. We have the data. Now, how do we use it? Totally. Totally. And that, that's where that's where I still have to move into. And that's why having all these conversations with so many different coaches and really understanding how to communicate the data in the best way to adjust gameplay and player stats and player development. That's where I need someone like you to give me more information on how players think and how coaches think. Because, I mean, I, I'm a data guy, but I also like haven't been in a like a, a college basketball basketball locker room before. Like I like I'm, I've been, I've played basketball like my entire life, but at the same time, I don't know what it's like to be one of these top tier uh, high major athletes. So it's really interesting to just get that perspective from a coach and some of the players I've talked to. So I, I know some of this future thinking for you has led to this unconventional offensive philosophy. Do you want to share that with us? Yeah, so I pitched this idea to a few teams, but I thought this would be the best place to uh, to go over it. So I have this odd transition theory 
So I have a question for you. How often do you think the worst defensive rebounder on the floor will get a defensive rebound? If you had to estimate. Not often. <laughs> yeah. So like, let's just say like if there's 10 guys on the court, we'll say like, yeah, ten, is, less than one, 10%. I was yeah. going to say one of 10. Yeah. <laughs> a little less than 10 because they're the worst, but yeah. Um, what if that worst defensive rebounder or the guy furthest from the hoop just sprinted forward, literally just sprinted forward, didn't worry about the rebound. Can so you imagine? Out. Yeah. Leaked out. Like, no, but like, right. Like even like right after the shot stage, just sprints, like doesn't even look, I have not seen a team do this. Uh, but I think this would just be the easiest way to increase your team's offensive efficiency. Uh, Obviously, transition is one of the most efficient things you can get. And then, so the two coaches I've sold this to, I said this to the OC at Ohio State and a few at uh, coaches at Manhattan, and they loved it, and they couldn't come up with a theory to debunk it. So I'm curious if you can and how this wouldn't work in the college basketball game. Well, the, what, what limits this is obviously tradition and cultural norms, right? And yeah. also the fact that as a coach – like, think about this as a coach. If this doesn't work and your team loses more than it wins, it brings obvious attention to something that you're doing differently than other people. And this is a real problem in coaching and the stuff that I deal with too, is it's really hard to do things that are totally different than other people because it becomes obvious and that becomes potentially the reason that you're fired. So true. Yeah. So like you can't, Obviously, I'm not a coach, but you can't let your job insecurity get in the way of maximizing your team's efficiency. I agree to a certain extent, but that unfortunately is, or fortunately, depending on, because some people have done a great job, you know, preserving their jobs, doing things the way they've always done them. But to do something completely unconventional, that would be the biggest thing to overcome. Now, saying that, uh, there are definitely coaches, and if you haven't watched the European game a lot, particularly there are coaches in Europe that teach on any corner three that you're flying. You're not rebounding on corner threes. So you leave wow. on all corner threes because the reason being is that the percentage of rebounds that come back to the shooter from the corner are very limited, right? Wow. So it's an area to be able to go. So that would be one example. But I, I love your thinking because I love the idea of trying to do something. And it kind of comes back to Aaron Fern sending five to the offensive boards. It forces the yeah. other team to react. You think, oh, we're going to get hurt. Well, meanwhile, you're not because the other team has to account for it, which is the same thing you're talking about. That was the same thing I heard from the two coaches I've said this to so far. They said, imagine like the thought process of a shooter thinking about the defender flying forward while they're shooting, like not like contesting and sprinting. Like that, that would affect the shooter as well. I didn't even think about that. But that, that has to be like, oh, crap, I have to get back on transition now. Yeah, it's a, you know, a flyby situation that some coaches call it. Uh, would be an example of that. You're not really trying to close out. You're just trying to jump and fly by. Uh, and traditionally, you do that against really good shooters. We did that once for a season when we pressed the whole season. And we flew by on all shots simply because we wanted to force more chaos. I love we that. Yeah. didn't think we could be very good just in traditional half-court defense without scrambles. And we got really good at scrambles, so it kind of played into that. And obviously, like me saying like these theories, like, trying to be malleable and uh, as a coach I'm not a coach so like I I, I come from like a different perspective so like I, I don't have to worry about my job security when I say something like this so obviously I'm inherently biased when I say that 
So I obviously don't take that in like a negative light. For sure. No, but you're not right. You're not wrong. That's just something again, that stimulates thinking. And, and, and again, like we want to relate this to all levels of coaches. Like I think about this, particularly at the high school level, or particularly with teams that have, you know, a certain number of quality rebounders that it makes sense. Like how many rebounders do you need to secure a defensive rebound is what you're exactly. basically saying. Exactly. Yeah. And I would think some teams probably get the majority of their rebounds from three players in essentially an area where it might be worth, you know, that type of pressure, putting it on the defense and transition. Yeah, so that's where like the theory lies. Like, would you rather have the player the furthest from the hoop sprint forward? Um, that corner three method I think is so cool with in Europe. I wonder what team's doing that. And um, fine, like so, would you rather have the furthest player or the worst defensive rebounder? I think probably the furthest player is actually the smartest way to do it. Um, but it obviously depends on the the shot attempt in the situation. Well, speaking about that in terms of the experience of having teach taught different things like this, for example, doubling the post, like yep. you can designate a player or you can designate a space. And I always found designating a player was best because they always knew it was their responsibility and there's no gray area. Then that after makes- your team gets better at it, then you can make it more situational. Um, just a thought, if somebody's thinking about doing this, we're just throwing out theory, by the way, I'm just a, I'm a basketball theorist right now too, since I'm not coaching a team. So <laughs> I love these things. <laughs> Great to hear. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wanted to, I, I just wanted the platform to bring this up. I thought about this like a few years ago and, they, uh, I, I pitched it to a few teams. Hopefully they'll do it. I have no idea, but, um, especially if you're going to be worse, if you, if you projected to be like a bad team. Why not try something unconventional and just like, yeah, if you're going to be bad, like why not try something novel and yeah. Well, uh, coaches, I know there's coaches that listen to this podcast, especially the high school level and some internationally that do this, do something like this, you know, please tweet us at bball immersion and at uh, shot underscore quality uh, tweet us and let us know because uh, we'd be fascinated to know. And I know at the high school level, there's leaking out all the time. Some of it intentional and some of it unintentional. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Like the the what the reason I was like thinking about it was like in like rec basketball when like the least totally. athletic kid just like sprints forward. <laughs> totally. Well, that's why you had the rule that you you can only score. Yeah, cherry picking, yeah. Basketball. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. So um I love some of this next level thinking. And obviously shotquality.com is all about that next level thinking and uh you know, for coaches that want to find out more information, what should they do? Uh, you can text me at 914-715-5337. Give me a call, do whatever, or email me at simon at shockquality.com. I'd love to hear from you, your thoughts, anything. And check out the site, www.shockquality.com. Uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from all coaches, any area. I didn't get into it, but uh, is there any differences to talk about at the NBA level to talk about the NBA level with shot quality. Yeah. So it's going to be more on like the college prospect side. So like the NBA teams that have signed up so far, they want to look at the college prospects that they're drafting to get these like more indicative stats uh, for their uh, for the players that they want to draft. Okay. Yeah, so I actually don't have any NBA players. Tra- All right, Simon. Thanks. Appreciate you sharing the game with us. Thank you so much, coach. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout-out on social media, 
to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.